0: Welcome everyone to another episode of the Seymour Podcast. Today's episode is all about crabs. We in the Baltimore area love our blue crabs of course, but there is more to them than just being tasty. Much more. Join us today to learn about their crazy life cycle, what is happening behind the scenes to ensure we never run out of them, and how you can help them. We're also learning about some fun facts about crabs in general, and how a single blue crab on the coast of Ireland sent the country into high alert. Today, our hosts will be Michael and Sebastian. Now let's hand over to them.
1: Hey Sebastian, have you heard? They recently found a blue crab on the coast of Ireland.
2: Oh, a blue crab?
1: Like one of our Chesapeake Bay blue crabs? Yeah, exactly. Okay, and? Well, that crab actually made the news. The whole country is now on high alert. Why?
2: What can a single blue crab possibly do to Ireland?
3: Since they're native to the Atlantic coast, they're a non-native invasive species in Europe. That was Sean Miller, a crab biologist with the Maryland Department of Natural Resources. That is definitely one of the main reasons there's such a, an alarm bell, if you will, on the other side in Europe. So they, they're very aggressive. They're very prolific. They're quick to uh, colonize. Being in a new habitat, um, just like we face with our invasive species here in Maryland, um, there's no real natural predators yet. So they basically are able to grow completely unchecked and sp- expand. And the Mediterranean and other European habitats are very optimal for blue crabs. so. There's several populations that are very well-established and call it wreaking havoc over in fisheries in the Mediterranean right now.
1: Sean's involved in surveying and maintaining the crab population here in the Chesapeake. By the way, I wonder if a crab biologist likes to eat crabs.
3: I do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we manage the resource, but I'm still not, uh, not discouraged from consuming them myself.
2: Yeah, I'm also looking forward to crab season. <laughs> yeah, me too. So what exactly is the problem here? Aren't the Europeans happy that they're getting some blue crabs to eat?
4: Something people may not know is that blue crabs are actually have been introduced in Europe before. And in certain areas like the Baltic, they are considered an invasive species. People are trying to eradicate blue crabs, which I'm sure will make many Marylanders weep uh, (laughs) to hear that someone is trying to get rid of or, or dump tons and tons of these crabs on land and just let them go to waste but uh, it's actually having a really negative impact on the fisheries, the native fisheries and the native fish species in those ecosystems. There are fishermen there who have spent generations fishing on eels and other species who now cannot catch anything but blue crabs.
2: And that was Dr. Allison Colden, a Maryland fishery scientist with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. And uh, her primary role is to develop policy for fishery in the bay. What is the goal of the foundation, Dr. Colden?
4: That's a great question. Well, the main motto or mission of the Chesapeake Bay is to save the bay.
2: Yes, that's a very important mission for sure. We will talk about that a little bit later. And for now, Dr. Colden, can you explain to us maybe how a blue crab ended up in Ireland?
4: Yeah, this is another mysterious one where I'll give you a couple of my best guesses, but I don't think anyone will ever know quite exactly where it came from. I think there's a couple of different ways that it could happen, what we would call a couple of different introduction vectors. One of the things that could have happened is it could have been introduced via ballast water. When large ocean going vessels are carrying cargo and they unload that cargo, a lot of times they will take on what's called ballast water, uh, which is water they pump into their hulls, which helps stabilize them. Because when they're loaded down with cargo, they're sitting lower in the water, they're less uh, susceptible to wind and waves and currents. But once they offload that cargo and head back to their home port, they need something to sort of lower them down into the water and keep their ship stable as they go. So that's what ballast water is used for. They pump the water into their hull. And then once they travel all across the world, whatever they pump into their hull in that water is just held in there. And so if they release that ballast water, once they get across the Atlantic Ocean, say, to Ireland, for example, it is possible that a small blue crab or a larva of a blue crab or something similar could have been released in that ballast water. And ballast water is one of the main vectors by which species are introduced to new areas throughout the world.
1: Hmm, I see. So many invasive species are sort of piggybacking on large cargo ships and then they get spread around. So that's one theory of how the blue crab got to Ireland. What are your others?
2: You mentioned that there are some blue crab populations in Europe already.
4: You know, it's possible considering that there are these populations of adult reproducing blue crabs and other places in Europe that it could have been transported somehow to Ireland, or it could have been an export in the seafood trade where somebody just let one go or it it got out somehow. Those are a couple of different theories. But like I said, got to be really, really good NCIS agent or something to figure out exactly how that happened.
2: Wow. So we may never know. But, um, what happens now? What is Ireland doing now?
3: yeah for I-, I think Ireland is so far still in the clear. I don't believe they have any established you know uh, blue crabs, but their departments are going to be on high alert um, you know to keep track of them generally your your best eyes on the gr- boots on the ground, eyes on the ground are your your watermen the ones that are on the water every day interacting with the fisheries and stuff like that. so they're going to be i believe that's how this one uh, this one was caught washed up, but other instances of Crabs found and um, spreading in Europe, or generally by commercial fishermen. So yeah, that's probably their their game plan is just to just keep keep the radar on and keep track, and hopefully you know they don't find any any more. And if they do, you know, pinpoint it and try to eradicate them if they can, because once they're established, there's no eradication. Wow, those blue crabs really are tough, huh? They're hardy animals. They're they're tough and they're very resilient. It's not a surprise that they're such a successful species.
2: What do they eat?
3: Uh, pretty much anything. Uh, they, they, they're more of a scavenger. Um, so they'll, whatever, when they're crawling or swimming along the bottom, they'll pick up dead or decaying matter, um, whether it be plant or animal, mostly animal. They'll also consume live fish, mollusks, anything else, uh, gastropods that they come across. They're particularly fond of clams. They can open clams? Yep. They're, the pincers are very powerful as well as the jaws, uh, the mouth parts. Um, they're, they were actually able to break through a lot of hard materials. Boy, I can
1: hardly imagine that. Yep.
3: <laughs>
1: so no wonder they're
3: an species. It sounds like they can eat literally anything. Exactly. And obviously, you've come across crabs before? They're very uh, formidable opponents if you're trying to eat a crab yourself. So it's the same goes for all the fish and other predators. Uh, either it either takes a very large predator or a, an opportunistic one. Um, they, the crab life cycle, they, since they have a hard shell, you know, they have to uh, molt that shell out to grow. Generally, about once a month, that's where you get your soft shell crabs. It's like basically, that's a crab that just recently molted and the shell hasn't hardened up. So that's when it's uh, an all-out buffet for all the predators out there because they're completely defenseless.
2: I see. But uh, I guess they don't have a choice, right? They have to mold to grow. And uh, I also heard that the female can actually only mate right after her last mold, when she's still soft, and then she lays her eggs and then she dies. Is that true?
3: Uh, yeah, it'll serve its life out. Um, so it can, ha- it can produce several sponges. So when the eggs are fertilized, it creates a sponge on the underside of the apron basically just a giant egg stack. So yeah, that's when they migrate and spawn, but they can do that in multiple spawns. So they can only mate when they enter their final shed, their final molt. Um, so once that's finished, the female can store the sperm for as long as she needs um, and then release it in batches to basically produce multiple spawns. But yeah, once she's finished hardening up on her final molt, that's all she's got.
2: Wow. And uh, she really only mates once? Only one male is, gets to be the lucky father?
3: That's the, the competition. So when you're out on the water, generally starting about July, right in the middle of the summer, we'll start to see them if you're motoring around on the rivers, um, you'll see what's called a swimmer or a doubler. So you'll see two crabs swimming on the surface. The male will cradle the female. So when she she'll emit signs that she's about to enter the final molt, so males will hunt them down, cradle them and basically protect that female and claim her until, you know, she's she actually sheds and can be mated. So It's a several day process ahead of time. And then in that time, you know, it's up to the male to protect and fend off other uh, other competitors. So competitors and I guess also predators, right? Since the female is soft and vulnerable after her molt? Exactly. So yeah, he protects her well. Yes, he won't release her until her shell hardens up also. So she got her best defense too, so uh, his genes can be passed on in the population. Wow, that's so fascinating.
2: Yes, I learned so much already about blue crabs. But uh, Sean, I have another question. I know that it's your job to survey the crab population so that it's healthy and doesn't get overfished, but how do you do that actually? Isn't it pretty hard to count the crabs? I mean,
3: they're everywhere. So the main, the main survey we use to determine the population is called the Winter Dredge Survey. So we do that from December through March. Um, it's a bay-wide survey done in cooperation with um, Virginia. Um, so Virginia surveys their half of the bay, we survey our half, and the data is pooled together.
2: Um, so how does this work
3: exactly? How are you counting the crabs? So, we use a bottom dredge. So, basically, the dredge is pulled for a one minute tow. It's a six foot long, basically, a heavy metal frame with teeth that dig the crabs up out of the mud. So, the crabs. We we target them in the winter because they're not mobile. If you tried to get a survey done during the summer, the crabs are moving and swimming around. You could never get an accurate estimate. So in the winter time, when everything is locked in place, that's when we survey them. So we got to dig them out of the mud and we estimate densities um, throughout the bay using that. And from there, we can get a, t- uh, a total number as well as breakout numbers from different uh, based by sexes and age groups. Ah, uh, now I get it.
2: So. You actually don't count all of them, but you take a few samples and then you extrapolate. So if you know the number of uh, crabs in a certain area of bay floor, then you can calculate how many there should be in the whole bay.
3: Yep. Yeah, we have a number of parameters to make sure we're, uh, you know, staying within the bounds of the science and the survey design um, to make sure our numbers are accurate. But yep, so we've been doing that since, I believe, 1990. 1990. Um, So it's been running for a little over 30 years
1: Wow, so this has been going on for quite some time. And actually, I also heard the latest report came out last month, right? Dr. Colden, I heard there were some concerns about the results this year.
4: You know, our interpretation of this year's results are that it's kind of a mixed bag. The number of adult females went up a little bit over last year, which is always great to see. Having a large number of adult female crabs can help maximize your potential for reproduction. Obviously, the more eggs you have, the more larvae you can get, and hopefully that will re- results in uh, more juveniles down the line. But one of the things that we were particularly a little bit concerned about was this year's uh, number of juveniles. So juveniles in this year's survey were down and were actually the lowest number recorded in the history of the survey, which started in 1990. So that is a bit concerning and does raise a flag and a need for caution, but it's not necessarily unexpected. The juveniles within the Bay actually fluctuate pretty widely from year to year because they have this complex life history where they are spawned at the mouth of the bay, and spend some time offshore actually in the Atlantic Ocean, and at a certain point um, after they have gone through several larval stages have to make their way back into the estuary and up the bay for their juvenile portion of their life cycle. So there's a lot of things that can go on while they're offshore in the ocean. It could be weather patterns, winds, tropical storms, and all of those things can impact how many crabs make their way back into the Chesapeake Bay. And then once they get into the Chesapeake Bay, uh, they have to have the appropriate habitat. One of the most important habitats for juvenile crabs is underwater grasses, sea grasses, or some people call them SAV for submerged aquatic vegetation. And this is where we get back to our broader goal of saving the bay. Seagrasses in the Chesapeake Bay are also much reduced from what they used to be historically. Um, there's a couple of different causes for that. There was a seagrass wasting disease in the 1930s. Then a big hurricane Hurricane Agnes in 1972, uh, which really negatively impacted seagrasses. But more recently, it's the nitrogen and phosphorus pollution and sediment pollution that's impacting seagrass species.
1: Mm, I see. Uh, Can I ask more about how that works?
4: It uh, causes algae blooms, which block the light from reaching the grasses on the bottom. And also sediment can do that directly by blocking the light. So one of the main things that people can do or or that the Chesapeake Bay region can do to help blue crabs is actually continue to work on this nutrient and sediment pollution reduction goals, Because doing those actions and reducing that pollution will increase our seagrasses. And those seagrasses are hugely important for those juvenile crabs when they are hanging out and they are hiding from their cannibalistic adult crab um, overlords, if you want to call them that, as well as other predators, other fish predators. So they're hugely important for refuge from predators, as well as great prey areas where they have lots of prey items to eat on as young crabs.
1: Uh, So that's where they live and hide and eat. Does that mean the low juvenile numbers this year are because the seagrass is disappearing?
4: It's hard to point just one cause, but definitely increasing the seagrasses will help juveniles in the long run.
2: But will it be a problem that there are so few juveniles this, this year? I mean, what does that imply?
4: So one of the main things from the consumer perspective, as well as from the fisherman's perspective, is the crabs that are counted as juveniles in the winter survey, they spend their whole summer growing up. And those are actually the crabs that are typically caught in the fall in the blue crab fishery. So what that may mean for the late summer and heading into the fall is it could be harder for watermen to find and catch crabs in the fall. And typically from a very simplistic supply and demand viewpoint, You can expect that would likely drive up the cost of crabs for the consumer and the the end user of that product as well. Although I will say there are a lot of economic uh, and other external factors that go into determining the prices of things. But looking at it from simply the supply and demand side, we can expect to see probably reduced availability of crabs in the fall because those juveniles which grow up to the fishery would not be available.
2: Okay, so now you know why the crabs might be a little bit more expensive this fall. We'll see. But um, is there anything our listeners can do to help save the bay? So that we get more seagrasses and juvenile crabs and also other species?
4: Well, there's a couple things that you can do at home. Things that reduce the amount of water that's reaching the Chesapeake Bay. If you think about it, every drop of water that falls from the sky falls onto a surface and then heads into the Chesapeake Bay. And what has happened over time is we have more and more residents in the Chesapeake Bay changed the landscape of what that water is falling onto from forest to develop land. So into these impervious surfaces where that water can't filtrate into the ground and be cleaned up per, per se. So one thing you can do is try to slow down and have that water filter into the ground Ways that people can do that at home is installing rain barrels, installing a rain garden in your backyard, um, a conservation landscape, using native plant and some topography, some rain barrels or other containers that can slow down and hold that rainwater to allow it to slowly infiltrate into the environment. Replacing impervious surfaces around your house with pervious surfaces. So if you've got a, an asphalt driveway, you could replace that with gravel or clamshell to allow the water to infiltrate there instead of running off and carrying all of the sediment and oils and gases and things that leak from your car into the Chesapeake Bay. So. Those are a lot of things. And the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, you know, we are an advocacy organization and as well. So one of the best ways that you can help is really advocating at the state and local level for the full implementation of the Chesapeake Bay uh, cleanup plan, which is driving a lot of our organization's work, but um, also making sure that our states and our municipalities are meeting their collective obligations to clean up the Chesapeake Bay, because the economy of our entire region depends on it holding our states and municipalities accountable for making those changes is really going to benefit all the residents of the watershed in the long run.
2: Amen. That was very well put.
1: Save the bay. Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Colden. Um, As our episode is coming to a close to end things off, I was wondering if we could each share some crab trivia. Dr. Colden, what's your favorite crab fun factor story?
4: Well, one thing I'd like to share is sometimes blue crabs do weird things genetically. Keep an eye out for that. Every once in a while, you'll see a news story come out. Sometimes you'll see blue crabs that have multiple flaws growing in the same place. These are just, you know, some standard genetic anomalies. It typically is not an indicator of of anything too concerning in the environment. One of my favorite examples of this is called a bilateral gonandromorph. If you want to use that for your uh, trivia of the day, you can share that firm with your family. But what it means is, the crab is split right down in the ha- right down the middle and half of the crab is genetically male and the other half of the crab is genetically female and they look really cool i believe they just found one about a week ago in the smith island area that they turned over to a local museum down there but they look really cool we've seen albino crabs so there's a lot of cool things to learn about blue crabs in the chesapeake bay so uh, i hope you guys and your listeners will continue to do some background research and keep your eye out for more blue crab stories as they come up
1: Wow. I will try to remember that. Uh, Bilateral genandromorph. Cool. I'll keep an eye out for that.
3: What is your favorite fun fact, Sean? I don't know. I get so used to working with the crabs. (laughs) I guess when I first started, you know, it was uh, interesting the local, you know, names you hear of, uh, you know, for what uh, different crabs are called. So each, the the sexes have a different, you know, street name, if you will, for lack of a better word, as opposed to uh, their scientific terms. Um, so, a mature male that we're used to seeing—that's called Jimmy. And then uh, the females are called different names as well, based on the maturity. So, a mature female is called a Sook, and an immature female is called a Sally. It seemed like an odd uh, uh, names to me, um, but it seems to be very very local to Maryland.
2: But you don't know where those are coming from.
3: Uh, it's, yeah, that's been around as long as I know <laughs> of. <Okay. laughs> It seems to be local to the Chesapeake, too. I don't think they're called them down in the Carolinas or on the Gulf Coast or anything like that. It's just a Maryland, Virginia local thing. Yeah. <laughs> and they're really, really easy to tell apart. If you've ever, ever check the apron underneath, and, you know, if it looks like being close to the D, uh, D.C., the, um, you know, the fun ism they used to uh, explain the classrooms and stuff like that is if it looks like the Washington Monument, it's a male. If It looks like the U.S. Capitol Dome. It's a female.
2: Oh yeah, I've I've seen that, right? The shape of the apron underneath. Either it's really pointy and narrow, kind of like the washing Monument, or it's more broad at the base and it's kind of shaped like the um um like the capital.
3: Yep, exactly. Yep. It's real really easy to tell to tell them apart and the female tend to have uh red tips on the the, the claws. So it looks like the yeah, the, the females are wearing uh, nail polish, t- painted nails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: That's funny, they, they really seem to want to make it easy for us to remember how to tell them apart. Great. And Michael, what's your favorite fun fact?
1: Oh, so I learned this one pretty recently, actually. Um, so you know there's a zodiac constellation called Cancer, right? That's a crab. Sure.
2: I'm Aries myself, though.
1: <laughs> I think I'm a Sagittarius, I, I can't remember. But the point is, do you know how that constellation came to be according to Greek mythology?
2: No, I actually have no idea. I didn't know there was a story behind
1: that. Oh, yes. Well, just very briefly, you know the story when Hercules fought Hydra, the multi-headed serpent, right? Well, he was actually also fighting a crab. It pinched him in the foot in the middle of the battle, and Hercules had to slay it. And then the goddess Hera, who famously hated Hercules because she was jealous, put the crab in the sky as a consolation to thank it for its valiant effort to defeat Hercules.
2: Whoa, I can't believe that I never heard of that. That's an awesome
1: fun fact. And what's your favorite crab fact, Sebastian?
2: Oh, my fun fact is that evolution loves crabs. Oh, wow. What do you mean? Well, it's called carcinization. So basically, everything wants to become a crab. And evolution has invented crabs at least five times. So that means that uh, there are many crustacean groups which look just like crabs, but have completely different looking ancestors.
1: Oh, that's so cool. So the crabs we were talking about are just one of nature's many attempts to evolve a crab.
2: Yeah, exactly. It seems like they're the most efficient being.
1: Whoa, (laughs) that is also a cool fact. And it's a great one to end on. Crabs, the perfect being. And they're pretty tasty on top of that. Well, thanks for tuning in to our episode about crabs. We hope to gain a new appreciation for them.
2: Oh, I will definitely never look at them in quite the same way.
1: Thanks for being with us, Sean and Dr. Colden. It was great having you on. I'm glad to be on here. Thank you very much.
4: <laughs> Thank you for having me.
0: That was our episode on Crabs. We hope you learned something fun with us. You can check out our show notes for links and resources related to today's topic. If you like the Cymore podcast, please share it with your friends and family and leave a review on our platform. You can also reach out to us with questions and comments there. Or you can find us on social media. We are on Twitter at CymoreP. That is the name of this show plus the letter P as in podcast. We are also on Instagram at Cymore And we are also on Facebook at Cymore which is one long word, Cymore Or better yet, call us and leave a voice message. You might even get featured on a future episode. Thank you for listening.